for the next hour or so, I'd like to invite you to grab your cup of coffee, tea, or caffeine-free A&W Diet Root Beer, if that's your beverage of choice, and settle in for the sixth episode of The Return of Fiber Hooligan. For those of you who are wondering who the heck I am, I am your host, Benjamin Levesay. I'm also the CEO of XRX, home of XRX Books and Stitches Expos. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm broadcasting live from my home in Harrisburg, South Dakota. If you are tuning in for the first time, Fiber Hooligan is a podcast dedicated to bringing you interviews with the best of the fiber arts and makers world, including experts, business people, designers in the crafts of knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, weaving, sewing, quilting, embroidering, as well as anything else I think is interesting. I want to welcome the new listeners today. Thank you for tuning in and trying out the show. I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait for us to get to know each other better. And of course, I'd like to welcome back our Fiber Hooligan listeners who used to tune into the original show many years ago. Your ongoing support means so very much to me. Okay, my guest today is Debbie McComer. For those of you who remember the original Fiber Hooligan, Debbie was my first and last guest. Debbie is a number one New York Times bestselling author and one of today's most popular writers with more than 200 million copies of her book in print worldwide. In her novels, Macover brings to life compelling relationships that embrace family and enduring friendships, uplifting her readers with stories of connection and hope. Macomer's novels have spent over 1,000 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. 13 of these novels hit the number one spot. In 2020, Macomer's all-new hardcover publications include A Walk Along the Beach, which will be, in, I think, uh, in July, and Jingle All the Way, which should come out in October. In addition to fiction, Macomer has always public, also published three best-selling cookbooks, an, adi- an adult coloring book, numerous inspirational nonfiction works, and two acclaimed children's books. Celebrated as the official storyteller of Christmas, Macomer's annual Christmas books are beloved, and five have been crafted into original Hallmark Channel movies. Macomer is also the author of the best-selling Cedar Cove series, which the Hallmark Channel chose as the basis for its first dramatic scripting television series debuting in 2013. Debbie McElroy's Cedar Cove was a ratings favorite for three seasons. She serves on the Guidepost National Advisory Cabinet, is a YFC National Ambassador, and is the World Vision's international spokesperson for their Knit for Kids charity initiative. A voted grandmother, Debbie and Wayne, live in Port Orchard, Washington, the town which inspired the Cedar Cove series. I've known Debbie for many years. She is warm and thoughtful, I'm so pleased that she could spare some time to be on the show. Debbie joins us today from Hood Canal, Washington. Good morning, Debbie, and welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Benjamin, and hello to all my fellow hooligans. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know, besides me, you were probably the original hooligan. Yeah, (laughs) I have the yarn to prove it. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen you at I've seen you at a show or two. You you know how to do some damage. It's you know, I I know I know it, it, it's impressive. I, I really You're, I really need a twelve step group for you know. Hello, my name is Debbie. I buy yarn. <laughs> <laughs> there, no, you don't. There's nothing wrong with you. What we need to do is teach more people to feel like you do. That's what we need. That's what the whole industry needs. When I see a skein of yarn, I don't see yarn. I see possibilities. Yeah. You know, I just, and the colors, I, oh, 
I'm like, it, Wayne says I'm like Midas with gold. I hold it. I fondle it. <laughs> Put it up to my well, face. I, I love yarn. Yeah, I remember um, at, talking to you once after a Stitches. I forget which one it was. It might have been the one in Atlanta. You were walking around, and, and it was like you were buying from almost every booth. And I realized you were looking at these sort of individual skeins of yarn, you know, hand-dyed, and as kind of like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, this is a one of a kind, you know, I'm a, I'm collecting, you know, and I and I kind of liked your sensibilities about collecting, because you can always think that maybe you'll make it to something, but the see, I believe that the knitting is what people do, you know, when they're sort of tired of collecting, for a while. Oh well, ah, I certainly have enough yarn. I uh, and I'm crazy about it too. Um, I got a reader letter one time. I, my husband will never forget this. And she said, you know, you're always talking about knitting and how much yarn you have. And she said, I want to knit for charity, but I can't afford yarn. Would you be willing to share some of your yarn with me? And I wrote her right back and I said, of course, expect a package. So I went down to my yarn room and I took out skeins of yarn and put them on the table that I have there. And I thought, well, no, I, I kind of wanted to keep that. I ended up buying her yarn because I couldn't part with any of my own yarn. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. When you were buying her yarn, did you manage to pick up anything for yourself at that shopping trip? Uh, I didn't. I didn't because oh, I – well, that's, that's discipline. Yeah, because it was at a – I hate to say this. I'm, I'm such a yarn snob. I went to a chain store. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I do understand, for, you know, for for those of you that, that don't know, uh, and Debbie did own her own yarn store um, for a while. I think it's, clo- it's closed now, right? Yes, it is. I just couldn't compete with the, um, well, first of all, because I wasn't there all the time. It was right below my shop. My um, The shop was right below my office. Uh, I couldn't be there all the time, and it was hard to keep a good manager, and it was hard to compete with the online sales completely understand no it, it's a it's a story i hear all the time but it was i was i've been to your shop in fact the, online there's a picture of you and me in your shop um and uh it's a beautiful shop yeah i mean all that oh, it was huge gorgeous. it was just huge too yeah, yeah yeah it was beautiful and there was an ice cream store next door i think the ice cream store is still there right no the ice cream store is now a little tiny yarn store oh, that okay. uh well a, 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 well, she, I don't know if she's a designer or not. She's, she's only been there like three months before it got closed. Um, but she dyes her own yarn. Well, that's pretty cool. I, I, you know, one of these days I'll have to yeah. get back up into your neck of the woods and say hi, and we'll go, you know, sightseeing together. So we got to yeah. get on with the interview because I know, I know that you know, as much fun as it, you know, you and I just catching up, they probably want to know a little bit more about you, like I do. Um, so we'll start the way I started off the very first time we ever talked, Debbie. Who are you, and where did you come from? Well, I was born and raised in in Yakima, Washington, which is right in the center of Washington State. And uh, who am I? Well, I guess I am a child of God. I am a wife, a mother, a knitter, a writer, a grandma. So, you know, those are all the titles I have. But uh, who am I is, um, I I think that's the hardest question anybody can ask or answer. Um, well, why don't, I know we, why don't that... we break it down a little bit, and we'll just start with your story. How about that? And we'll we'll lead okay. into that a little later. Why don't we start this? Let's, for the sake of the argument, talk about when and why you started knitting. It's a good story. Well, that 
that is it is a good story because uh, it was certainly uh, a turning point in my very young life. Uh, I'm dyslexic, and which I think is you know God's sense of humor that He would take somebody that didn't learn to read until the fifth grade and make them a best-selling author. <laughs> but I've always had this creative imagination, but I struggled in school. It was terrible. I just got passed from grade to grade because I was smart enough to learn how to sight read so that I knew T-H-E said the. And, uh, and I would listen to what people read and memorize it, and then I would repeat it. And, uh, but I was always at the bottom of my class, uh, the third grade teacher with the parent-teacher conference, she called my mother in, and, and I was sitting right there, and she said, Debbie's a nice little girl, but she's never going to do well. And I didn't. I mean, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. But sometime around age 11, I learned to read when I was 10. I finally figured out how to read. And uh, around 11, uh, I just had the burning urge to learn how to knit my mother didn't know how she could crochet but she couldn't crochet from a pattern somebody had to show her and she wasn't one to sit down and do that she had a job she had a family you know she was working in a housewife and so I pestered her all one summer to take me to the yarn store I wanted to learn how to knit so I went and she did and I sat down and I walked there every day from there and it was miles uh, it must have been at least two miles. And I walked there every day and sat with the ladies to learn how to knit. And the very first thing I knit was a vest for my mother. Uh, she never wore it. <laughs> and if you could look at it, you could see why. But you know what? She had it when she died. I found it when she died. I went through her things, and I found that in that vest in her closet. And, um, but learning how to knit at that point in my life was changing for me. It just changed everything because I had to learn, um, mathematic skills, comprehension skills, and it gave me such a badly needed sense of accomplishment, a a sense of pride that I just didn't have that I never got from school ever. I think the 12 years of school, the highlight of my 12 years was when I was in the eighth grade. The teacher saw some of the things that I had knit and was so impressed. She had me do like a little fashion show in front of the class with the things that I had knit. And that was the best day of my grade school life or my whole school life was then. So fantastic. And that's how I started knitting. And obviously you kept it up over your, most of your life, right? Yes. I don't. I think there was only a brief span there when we had four babies under five that I didn't knit. Now, this is also kind of an interesting story. So this is kind of the next you know, part of you. And obviously you, 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 you met Wayne, you got married, you know, your life was continuing on. Why and when did you start writing? This is also a good story. Oh. Well, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I I knew that I wanted to write early on because I was a storyteller, and that that just came naturally to me. And but I can this is uh, I mean my school years were bad. They were really bad, Benjamin. They were um, when we graduated. When I graduated from high school, I went to a, a Catholic girls' school, and uh, at the before we graduated, um, the 
principal, Sister Anna Marine, interviewed each one of us girls and asked us what we were going to do after graduation. And I had never told anyone I wanted to write books. I mean, I wrote it in my journals but or my diary, but I'd never spoken it aloud. And I told her, I'm going to write books. And now, this, this is so many years ago, but she sent me home to think about it. Now, she didn't say the words out loud, but what, she was, what I was hearing her say is, you need to think about something more in line with your intelligence level. So it was one of those things that's so easy when you're afraid and you have nothing but failure in your background to stuff into the future. Okay, someday I'll be a writer. So I, I did what happened in the 60s and 70s when I graduated. There were 10 girls in my class that married the summer after graduation. Can you believe that now? Ten girls in my class. Um, I married a year later. Wayne, I was still a teenager when Wayne and I got married, and we had the four babies right away. And uh, but I kept thinking about being a writer. I wanted to write books, and but again, it was you know we didn't. We were a one-income family, and um, it took a death in our family. My a cousin I had grown up with. There were six of us that were born in those baby boom years after World War II. And four of us were in the same grade. And David and I uh, were really close. And David, we sat in alphabetical order. And so David was Adler, was my maiden name. And it was D-A and then D-E. So he was sat in front of me for years in school. And uh, he got leukemia. And I actually tell this story a lot at writers' conferences, but they – I was the first, he was living in Yakima, but they transferred over him over to the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. And I was the only cousin at the time living in Seattle. So I went to see him, but I got lost in the hospital because it's connected to Swedish. And I was in Swedish and I couldn't find my way. Stopped a doctor. I said, how do I get from here to there? And he gave me such specific instructions. He says, you go down this hallway, you could take a right and you go all the way to the end and walk through the doors marked absolutely no admittance. So that was how I started to be a writer. I walked through that door, said absolutely no admittance, rented a, a manual typewriter because we couldn't afford to rent on an electric, put it on the kitchen table, and I started writing. And that was how I started writing. And you didn't have success right away. Oh, <laughs> no. I like to say the rejections came so fast they hit me in the back of the head on the way home from the post office. <laughs> Five years, five years. I wrote four books all the way through, and oh, I thought I was just brilliant. I thought it was just brilliant. You know, I just I loved these books, and and uh, I couldn't understand why New York kept turning them away. And, um, about uh, two and a half years into this, when I, I'd written about I think two or three books, no, maybe just two, at this time, uh, Wayne was uh, working construction. It was a really bad economy. And he'd been out of work for a long time, and uh, he, he, came, he was paying bills one Sunday. And uh, he came and he looked at me and he just shook his head and he says, I, I can't make the car payment this month. And uh, he said, honey, I, I know you want to be a writer and I know you love what you're doing, but I need you to get a job. I need you to start bringing in some income. And, oh, man, I have no job skills. I mean, I married so young. I, I never had a career. 
other than, you know, changing diapers. And uh, I, I went to bed and my heart was so heavy, Benjamin. I, I just, you know, I wanted this more than I'd ever wanted anything in my life. And I loved it so much. And and I, I circled three jobs I thought I could possibly get. And, um, not that there's anything wrong with any of these jobs other than the fact I did want to do them. But I still, even all these years later, remember exactly what they were. One was working at a cleaner's, and I didn't know what I'd be doing, a receptionist for a dentist, and uh, uh, working at like an AM-PM as a cashier and swing shift. And uh, like I said, I went to bed with this heavy heart, and I just couldn't sleep because I knew I was going to have to give up this dream. I couldn't do it all. You know, the kids were busy. They were in sports and scouts and church and music. And I couldn't work 40 hours, keep up the house, manage the kids, and be a writer. That writing had to go. And so, I mean, it was really the dark night of my soul. And, and so I just, it was my Isaiah, not Isaiah, Isaac, that I laid upon the slab because uh, here it was, you know, I was going to have to give up that dream. And I didn't know how long it would be before I could pick it up again. And about 3 or 4 in the morning, Wayne woke up and he rolled over and he said, Are you awake? And I said, Yes, I haven't even been asleep. And he, and he says, Well, honey, what's wrong? And I says, You know, I really think I could have made it as a writer. I do. And he didn't say anything for a long time. And then he sat up and he turned the light on. And he said, Honey... Go for it. Go for it. We'll make what sacrifices we have to make. You follow that dream. Now, you know, I wish I could say, you know, I was so talented that I just sold right away. But it was another two and a half years before I sold that first book. Five years total. Wow. I mean, you know, but 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 what a supportive husband that I mean, you know, that's, got to be a rough call for him to be able to make too and wow wow that's a lot of faith it's, well it's you know that was not the you know the two and a half years i started um writing articles i figured i had to at least because i was taking a hundred dollars a month out of our family budget and we didn't have it and i felt like i had to at least write something that would bring an income so i started writing actually i sold dozens of articles by the time i sold the first book and uh, the very first thing I sold, you'll love this, Benjamin, was our youngest son was in the Christmas program at church. And all he had to do was step forward and recite his Bible verse, and, and uh, which, you know, he, he recited all the way to church. And, he, he you know, he stood up before, and he, remember, he's only five. And he stood up in front of the church, and he um, per- said it just perfectly. And then and this look of absolute horror came over him. He forgot the reference. And he looked at me like, help me, Mom, help me. So, you know, I put my, my hands around my mouth and I said, it's Luke, it's Luke. And Dale brightened and squared his shoulders and he said, Luke Skywalker. So <laughs> I, I sold that for $5, $5. And I'm telling you, that was validation. Something I had written sold for $5. And and I, the biggest sale I had was Women's Day magazine, and I got $350 for that. And it, that was so much money to us. I mean, we never had an extra $350. And uh, I can remember how proud I was. I gave Wayne that check, 
And I showed it to him, and he looked at me, and his eyes got all bright, and he says, this is going to work out, honey. This is going to work out. (laughs) And so we decided what we were going to do with that $350 because it felt like, I mean, it felt like we could pay off the house. I mean, that's how much it felt like. Um, He said, you know, why don't you go to a writer's conference, meet an editor. I had never met an editor, ever. And uh, so this is the crazy part. I uh, found out about a writer's conference, and uh, there were two editors who had worked for the very house that I had been submitting my manuscript to. And they agreed to review 10 of these manuscripts. They, they said they would look at them and give a critique on them. And so I sent in my proposal, and mine was one of the 10 that was chosen. And so when I went to the conference, it was August, and Wayne could always count on working in the summers. This summer, he was not working. He was out of work, and he was up in Alaska waiting and hoping and praying to get on with the pipeline while the kids and I were living in Seattle on his unemployment check of $150. Now, if I had not paid for this conference beforehand, I would, I would never have gone. But so I went there, and the editor who had read my um, proposal stood up and said, one of these proposals shows a lot of promise. Now, I had written this book and loved it. I did, this is the best I could do. If this book didn't sell, I didn't think anything I wrote would ever sell. And it was all I could do to raise my, not raise my hand and say, that would be me. That is my manuscript. I know it. And it wasn't. She had the whole room laughing at what she called the infeasibility of my plot. Now, she could have said anything she wanted about the writing because I had to learn to be the writer. But my gift is that of a storyteller. And if the story wasn't any good and the writing was bad, I would never have a chance to sell. But I didn't care. I was willing to do anything. And so I went up to her afterwards and I told her who I was and what the name of my manuscript was. And I asked her, "If are you willing to look at it again, and if you do, I could rewrite it for you. And, oh my goodness, I, I'd forgotten how many years ago that is, but it will never forget. The look that came over her, she leaned forward, and she put her hand in my arm and stared me straight in the face and said, throw it away. Wow. Well, dark night of my soul... So I I went home. I didn't even bother to go to bed that night. I sat up all night long, and I thought, you know, all those ugly voices I had heard as a kid growing up, Debbie's a nice little girl, you know, and she'll never do well. You know, all those negative, ugly voices, you know, it was horrible. Uh, But I thought, you know, if I was ever going to think positive, I needed to do it now. So I picked up my Bible. And I read the reading for the day, which was John 14. The first verse says, let not your heart be troubled. I closed the book and I says, God, have you got a sense of humor? <laughs> let my heart be troubled. It was troubled. Wayne and I are, you know, Wayne's out of work. I'm, you know, spending this money going to Tacoma to this conference. So I went back and see if I could get a refund. And they wouldn't give me a refund. And I thought, well, I am not wasting this money. 
So I attended a workshop for writing children's books. I thought, well, maybe this is just God's way of telling me I need to write for kids because everything I'd sold at this point basically had to do with the kids. And so I went to the workshop, and the uh, agent got up and said, I'm not taking on any new clients. The editor got up and said, I'm not uh, buying any books. And then the author got up and said, if you want to sell, do this. And I don't remember anything she said other than, do not leave a rejected manuscript on your desk. It has a home. Your job is to find it. So that little bit of hope, I grabbed onto with both hands. I went home inspired and encouraged, and I immediately wrote what's known as a query letter to another publisher. And the query letter basically just says, you know, this is the story of my book. If you're interested, please let me know, and I'll mail you the manuscript. And you can close a self-addressed stamped envelope. And so I waited every day, every day, every day, nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, that rejected manuscript sat in the corner of my desk by this time I had a desk. And it just shouted at me, so you think you're going to sell a book? Yeah, you, Debbie Adler Makeover, going to sell a book right. And one day, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I loaded the kids up in the station wagon. We drove to the post office. And I'm standing in line, and I know to mail this manuscript off, it's going to be $10. When you are living on $150 a week, $10 is a lot of money. And I remember when I got it to the postmaster, he said, you have to let go of the money. <laughs> let go. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I thought, am I doing the right thing? And, oh, we get home, and our son Ted ran down to the post box, and he grabbed the mail, and he said, Mom, Mom, that letter you've been waiting for is here. So there I raced down. I stood right in the middle of the street, tore open the envelope, in a Sharpie pen, right across the face of my letter, the editor wrote, Do not mail us your manuscript. We are not buying at this time. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I was talking about being depressed. I, I say, you know, I, I've never been that depressed in my life, and, and I hadn't until I had teenagers. But I, 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 was, I, could, I couldn't move. I mean, I really, I laid down on the sofa, and I didn't move the rest of the day. I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I cannot put my family through this. I can put myself through this. And then three weeks later, September 29th, 4.39 in the afternoon, New York called and bought the manuscript. If I had waited, Benjamin, a half hour, I would never have mailed it off. And that was how I got published. And you know what? This is, this is a wonderful part. I had written four books at this time. Every single one of those books sold. I had to rewrite them because the writing was immature, but the stories were always good. One of them hit number one on the New York Times list. Is that amazing? Uh, you know, it is amazing. I shouldn't be amazed by anything you do because you, 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 you know, you, yeah, you kind of amaze me all the time. You always have. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, you, you your success stories are really all about, you know, you sticking it in, sticking it out, not not just, you know, getting lucky or anything like that. I mean, five years, that's a long time to try and fail, you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
I've had knitting patterns I've tried and failed with for five years, too. <laughs> are, are like, Lace patterns. <laughs> right. You once, I, you once told me that when you, when you want to live dangerously, you, you knit lace. I, I always thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> it's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, so, so now you're an author, and you've got a publisher, and, and things are, are, are rocking along. And, and, you know, you've got a little money in your pocket, and, you know, I, I, th- I think there was a time between that. But, you know, you, you, you started to find your people. I, I think before you and I had ever met, you had actually gone to one of the Stitches shows, because uh, I remember Tracy talking about you. I think that's right, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and I didn't meet until we kind of hooked up and were on the board together for Warm Up America. And at that point, you know, we started seeing each other at, uh, you know, knit out events and, and TNAs and things like that. And every so often you'd come and see us at, at, at Stitches, too. We miss you. It's been a while since you've been there. But, you know, I do understand. Let's talk about your experience with the industry. I mean, you know, you made some good friends and you, you had a lot of fun. Can you give me some of the highlights of, of, you know, your time when you were really inside the industry? Well, it, it all started with Warm Up America. And then um, the yarn stores noticed um, that my books, and I, I should say, you know, I wrote for 20 years and, uh, you know, building my readership one book at a time, one reader at a time. But when my career really took off is when I combined my passions of writing and knitting. And it was that that, that my first New York Times bestseller was a yarn well it wasn't the paperback the first hardcover was a yarn book it was about a yarn store that i created on blossom street and that was my very first hardcover new york times because i combined those passions and those passions are legitimate with me i mean i know lots of writers out there who wanted to jump on that uh, success of that and you know they would write books about being knitters but they weren't knitters themselves and you either you know you cannot fool people that are real knitters so um that's that is knitting and writing are the two biggest passions in my life and as soon as i had some success and the book started getting out there it uh it got picked up and i'm not a designer but they decided to do uh pattern books based on the titles of my books and uh they uh then warm i hooked up with warm up america and then you know this just opened a whole new world to me of knitting friends and becoming good friends with designers and other knitters uh one of my very very best friends who died two years ago the 21st of this month uh roberta who wrote as christina sky her uh i taught her to knit well, she had she had learned when she was a kid, but uh, her and I were on an author cruise together. They used to do these years ago. They would bring authors and readers together on cruise ships, and they would have the authors. Uh, they would align us with teaching something. You know, either it would be jewelry making or whatever, some some kind of project. Mine was knitting. I actually taught uh, with my friend Joan three hundred people how to knit. And uh, as I was teaching the class, Roberta was walking down the the deck, and she heard my voice. And so she snuck in, and she remembered she had knit in college 
but had laid it aside and hadn't picked it up for years and years and years. And so she started knitting then. And her and I hooked up as knitters and friends. And we went, I think, to every Stitches and Vogue conference that was out there. I mean, we it was just our thing. We loved it. And, you know, once we did that, um, we got to meet some of the designers, Nikki Epstein and um, uh, Sally Malville and several of the, you know, the really key designers in our industry. And to have that opportunity to meet them and, to, you know, kind of bow at their feet because they're so masterful. I mean, the mathematics involved in these things amazes me. Yeah, so, you know, I loved that. And I loved uh, having the, the friends that I made. They're still friends today, Candy Jensen, for sure. I mean, we still keep in contact uh, even now, all these years later. Roberta and I were yarnaholics. I mean, we just, both of us, we couldn't stand it. We'd, we'd go to one booth and she'd buy something, I'd buy something, and then the next booth, the same thing. And she was at, um, joined a real strong knitters group in Arizona where she lived. And those ladies have become, we have an annual get-together in memory of Roberta. This will be the third year we're doing it. Well, well, we're going to do it virtually this year, Zooming. But, yeah, Zoom has become my life. But So that's basically some of the, the, some of the things that have happened as a result of writing those knitting books, getting in with the knitting industry, and meeting and becoming friends with them. Yeah, I, I, a lot of, a lot of things happen. I mean, just to give a, you know, kind of a, a, a little bit of an overview about the things that I know about. Um, you know, at, at one point you, you did have your own yarn line. Um, you know, yarn lines come and go. So that, but it was a beautiful yarn line. Uh, that was with, uh, that was with uh, Universal, correct? Right, right, Universal. Yes. Yep. Um, you know, we had. Uh, oh, speaking of one of your friends, Rick wants to say, want me to tell you hello. Uh, that's kind of a fun thing. You had a connection with our, our editor of Knitter's Magazine uh, for a while, and uh, he actually did a little work for you, but we don't have to get into all that, but it was it was kind of fun. Um, anyway, the, uh, the seeing you uh, and Roberta together was one of the best things to do, because she was like your partner in crime. You used to go to places, and we were lucky enough that you always – made time to have lunch with us, and that was wonderful. I mean, you guys were always so much fun to be with. <laughs> well, we loved it. We loved it. The stitches, are, the stitches are the best, really the best conferences there are, and there's so much going on all the time. You can take classes. You can shop. You can eat lunch with good people. <laughs> so these are my people. <laughs> these are my people. It's like <laughs> Moses and the Holy, you know, going to the Holy Land. <laughs> Well, you know, I always figure for as much as you and Roberta spent on the floor, buying you lunch was at least the least I could do, you know? I mean, you oh. were supporting <laughs> the, the economy pretty well there. <laughs> oh. So um, one of the things that uh, my family is uh, really tickled about, and, they, you know, every year they, they, you know, the season comes, they turn on the Hallmark Channel because they have to see all your Christmas movies. That, I mean, that's got to be a big thing when those Christmas music movies came out. Yeah, that was a really big thing. Uh, it, it was amazing because the, the first book that was uh, produced by them was called Mrs. Miracle, and it was about 20 years old when they picked it up. I mean, it was a it was a much older Christmas book, maybe 15 years. Um, I have three movies in production now. What, what stage? I don't know because everything's at a standstill with this pandemic. Um, but 
uh, I'm just not sure what's going to happen. Now, one of them is uh, uh, 12 Days of Christmas. Another is uh, another Mrs. Miracle movie. And what was the third one? Uh, Baskets. Something bad. See, so many titles. Um, The Christmas Basket. That's right. So I have three, three movies all in some kind of stage, at some stage, any rate, and two TV series at some stage at some point. So I don't know what's going to happen with any of these anymore. It's Everything is such at a standstill. And from what I understand, California is going to be at a standstill for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure they're going to be as successful as the other ones have been, and I'll look forward to catching them on television, you know, whenever they come out. We can be patient, right? Yes, we can be patient. Yes. So, um, you, you, I know you're a little uncomfortable talking about this, but let's talk about some of your philanthropic work. I mean, I, I know this is one of those things where you hate talking about it. You just like to do it and not really talk about it. But, you, you, you know, through the entire time I've known you, you've always been on some board and a part of some charity and giving back. <clears throat> The, the things you're involved with right now, of course, are the national, the Guidepost National Advisory Cabinet, the, the YFC National Ambassador, and World Vision. Um, can, can, would you like to talk about any of those? Well, let me talk about Knit for Kids because okay. uh, that is a real favorite of mine, naturally. And it, it started with Guidepost, but it just got to be so big, and they just couldn't handle it. So they handed it over to World Vision because they were giving the sweaters to World Vision to hand out. So um, about four years ago, um, maybe, yeah, boy, time goes by fast. My daughter and husband and two of my granddaughters, we went to Kenya to distribute these sweaters. Now, these sweaters are a very simple pattern, and uh, people will knit them, knit for charity, and we were going to pass these out. Now, you don't think Kenya is hot, you know, it's going to be, it's Africa, it's Africa hot. But up in the mountains, it gets really cold. And so we went to the schools that were there and distributed the sweaters. And I have to tell you, such joy on these children's faces. that They had something. And I said, you know, this came from someone who loved you enough to spend hours making this sweater just for you. Uh, and I remember um, I had... Um, there was a mother there who had five children. Her husband had deserted her, and World Vision had given her a loan, and she was raising chickens and selling the eggs. And by doing this, she was supporting her uh, family. We went to her. She was so proud. She wanted us, invited us to her home. Well, getting to her home, I'm telling you, was no easy thing. Um, it was uh, it, down this ravine, across a creek, and up the other side of the ravine, and then maybe a half a mile to her little farm. And so we went, and I had a sweater for each one of her children that had been knit by the volunteers from Warm Up America. And uh, her oldest daughter got a blue sweater. And the next time I saw the mother, she had that blue sweater on. She took it from her daughter. So I knit her a sweater and had it sent through World Vision directly to her so she would have her own sweater. So, I, you know, it was so touching to see that. And uh, we've, this has continued, and it doesn't have to be a sweater. I just knit a, a, a blanket. I've just had a bunch of fun yarn left over, and I just picked up a simple pattern and knit a blanket. 
And these things go all around the world. Uh, my daughter recently went to Rwanda and uh, handed out sweaters for uh, uh, the missions there. And, uh, it, you know, this has become there's literally thousands of sweaters that come in from, uh, from this organization, you know, Knit for Kids. And it isn't just kids, obviously, since <laughs> the mother yeah. got the sweater. Well, absolutely. Well, that's pretty great. I, I had not heard the, uh, the story about you going to Africa. I must have missed that one. Well, you and I haven't talked for a while, but it's good to be catching up now. Um, it so, is. yeah, that's fantastic. I'm sorry, you were going to say something? No, no, I was going to say I, just, I love being part of that and being able to promote that. We do a knitting yes. blog. Now, I don't know if it's like a knitting blog, but we do, um, we do things with World Vision a lot with Knit for Kids. And they're very supportive and you've been working with, with it. And you've been working with World Vision on other things for a while, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wayne and I are big supporters of them. And, uh, you know, when you, God has just blessed us in so many ways. I mean, the other day, Wayne and I were sitting out on our back patio in the sun and looking out over the water, and, and uh, we looked at each other and we thought, what did we ever do to deserve this? You know, it was just peaceful and beautiful. And we have been given so much. And you can't have that kind of, of blessing without blessing others. My parents grew up in, in the Depression era, and... They understood what it meant to help others, and even though they were never more than middle class, uh, my dad had his own uh, small little company. He was an upholster, and my mom worked as a waitress, and they never had a lot, but there was never a time that they weren't willing to help others. And, you know, that kind of passes down from that, that act of charity, of caring about others. It goes from generation to generation. Now, with my grandkids, you know, two things with them. Number one, I did not want them to grow up and say, I had a famous grandma. She was a famous author. But I didn't really know her that well. And that just kind of struck me. You know, they were, they've grown. They're, in fact, they're in the, most of them are in the 20s now. But when they were small, I thought, I have got to make, this is the time for me to spend with them. And so I started grandma camp. And one of the very first things I did was share all my passions with them, which meant I taught them to knit. And, you know, I showed them I have kept a journal my entire life. In fact, oh, it must have, well, I don't know how long ago it was, we had moved and I was unpacking a box and I found a a diary. It was a spiral-bound diary that uh, I had started in 1973, and the first page said, January 1st, since the greatest desire of my life is to somehow, some way, be an author, I'll start with the pages of this journal. I found that when I had sold, I don't know, 100,000 books I don't know, but I had. They were in 23 different languages. I remember that. Uh, you know, just the power of having written that down. But I, so I taught my granddaughters. Wayne took the boys, but I took the girls. I taught them how to knit. I set them up with journals. We did cooking classes. We did shopping, and uh, I took them to New York, and we saw five plays in four days, <laughs> and. 
this was just an important part of of being a grandma and and, and learning to love them and to get them to understand you know what what it means to be charitable so instead of giving them uh, money for Christmas for themselves what I did was I gave them this is actually Easter I gave them $50 and this is remember this is years ago so this is this is when $50 was a lot more money than it feels like now and uh, I said the two things you have to give it away and you have to tell me what you did with it and I, and I thought, well, they're going to, you know, because they get spoiled. They get lots of stuff. And they, I was surprised. They were all excited about it. And I got a letter from my granddaughter who was in high school at the time. And she said, Grandma, thank you so much for doing this because I was able to give it to a homeless boy at school. And when I gave him the money, he cried, and I did too. Thank you. Doesn't that get your heart? <laughs> oh, it does, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds just like a, you know, it sounds like somebody related to you, absolutely. Yeah. And so for their birthdays, instead of buying them gifts, even now I don't buy them gifts, what I do is I sponsor a child born in a third world country that was born the same day they were, maybe not the same year, but the same day. And, you know, that charity, it goes from one generation to the next. And they have a relationship with that child, and they know how fortunate they are to live where they do compared to where this child lives. Very nice. I mean, that is something that, you know, we've talked about many times, you and I, an attitude of gratitude, and that's something that, you know, you're writing in, in, embodies that as well. Yeah, well, that's I have to. <laughs> that's just part yeah. of, you know, my DNA. Yeah. So speaking of your writing, um, you've got two books coming out, one in July and one October. Let's talk about those two real quickly. Oh, Walk Along the Beach. It, I think it's probably one of my very strongest books, and I, I dedicated it to Roberta. And, uh, it's the story of two sisters and the close relationship they share in this little beach town community. And um, uh, one of them gets very sick. So uh, it, it, it's kind of reminiscent. I think Roberta would have loved that book. The, the second book is um, called Jingle All the Way, which is a crazy title for this book because it takes place in the Amazon. Uh, Wayne and I uh, took a cruise down the Amazon. We've actually gone to the Amazon and to Antarctica because Wayne knows I'm not going to find a, any yarn to buy there. <laughs> So I can't use my credit card either place. <laughs> so we went down the Amazon, and we had some wonderful adventures. And so this book takes place when her, she thinks she's going on a luxury cruise, and she's actually on a, an explorer ship that's that's sailing down the Amazon from Manaus. So uh, it's, it's fun, and then, it, then she does go back to Chicago, and there's Christmas there. But it, it's kind of a fun – it's a funny book anyway. It's a lighthearted read. Well, very nice. Well, and, and they'll be uh, in uh, – is it coming out electronically, too, or just in, in hardcover or paperback first? Uh, it comes out in hardcover and on e an e-format, too, you know, a digital format. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about a year from now, uh, it'll – maybe six months with the hardcover, it'll come out in paperback. Okay. 
So, see, let me see. Uh, uh, Window on the Bay was my last hardcover, which was in the summer, and it came out in, uh, I think, February as a paperback. So, and and it'll make many versions. They'll do trade size and, you know, a number of other ways, too. And as well as your uh, your books that are coming out, I, I saw online that you got a new online magazine. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's called Welcome Home. So I'm easing into retirement. I have a staff of eight. I know most writers don't, you know, uh, just write at home. I, it was kind of interesting with me because I was a housewife and a mother, and people wanted to earn enough as a writer to quit their jobs and go home and write. I was just the opposite. I wanted to make enough money to get out of there. So uh, when Dale was in high school, our youngest uh, senior in high school, I rented my very first office. And uh, that was, I'm trying, I'm losing track here. What was the question? What were we talking about? The Oh, we were, we were, we were talking about your online magazine. Oh, sorry. Thank you. So anyway, I'm easing into retirement, and my staff, uh, they want to keep working and doing things, and so we came up with the idea of writing a short story, me writing a short story uh, every month that to put online to sell. And, and I thought, well, they want to charge like three ninety nine for this short story. And I'm saying, no way. I mean, I love writing short stories, but uh, I'm not going to charge people that. We're going to have to give them something more, because I've always been a value-added author, and uh, that was my idea. If, if you if you want to do uh, short stories, we're going to have to do something more. So the, so they came back and they said, what about doing our own magazine? So welcome home because the tagline of my books is, wherever you are, Debbie takes you home. Because basically, I write a lot about communities and and uh, you know either knitting communities, cities, whatever. And uh, so we started with the magazine. It's uh, been a real learning process because it's digital only. We started off one a month. Now we're doing every other month. Uh, it has, it, it's like 60 pages. I mean, we really do give you a lot for your money uh, without advertising. You look at magazines now, half of them are advertising. It's just, I mean, it's kind of shocking when you look at it. And the uh, articles come from my other writing friends. There's always a short story by me. There's always a... A book recommendations. There's uh, um, articles and, uh, and do-it-yourself projects and recipes. And you know, one of my other passions is eating. I am a frequent eater. I love to eat. And I'm right now. I'm suffering from what they call the COVID ten. I've gained ten pounds in the last three months. <laughs> Not a good thing. And um, so there's always recipes and stuff. So that's the, the magazine starting. So there, the goal is. For my staff to keep working and producing this magazine will supplement the income I don't make if I only write one book a year. So you're going to come down to one book a year. So your life is really changing then. Yeah. Well, I'm in my 70s now, for heaven's sakes. Let's go, you know, I, I don't feel it, but uh, I want to do some more traveling. I, there are so many places I have not been. And, uh, you know, of course, start out with the Amazon and the Antarctica isn't a good place to go. <laughs> Although both of those were really fun adventures, I'll say that. And and one of the you'll love this. One of the incidents in the story actually happened, it, not to us. But it was a, a couple we met on the cruise. They went piranha fishing in the Amazon, and uh, one of the um, uh, little, these little what they call zodiacs 
were out piranha fishing, and my friend actually caught three piranha. It was catch and release. But she, uh, while they were going under some foliage, a spider, this one of these humongous big spiders, came into the raft. One of the men screamed and jumped overboard. <laughs> He, he into, survived. Into the, okay, I was going to say into the piranhas. Into the yeah, right into the piranhas. But they kind of you okay. know Hollywood's given them a bad name. They don't do eating frenzies unless they're starving. No, I, I would imagine. I would imagine not. I would imagine not. So, okay. Well, see, you just have the the best stories. We could be on here for hours, but okay, we we, we got to move. We got to move on. I can't keep you for hours. I know you were you're you're very busy. Okay, there is. Um, I love to ask this question. I love. I I, I know your answer, so I'm going to especially ask this question. So, what are your inspirations? Oh, <laughs> I joke around. I say, actually, my inspirations are two house payments. <laughs> but you know, I'm a natural. I, lo- I like I said, the gift God gave me is a storyteller, and I love what I do. And I really don't think I'll have a book in progress when I die. I know, I know. I'll just never stop because I love it so much. Yes. Well, I mean, if you do what you love, you you know, you never work a day in your life. Although I think you do work pretty hard, and you have worked pretty hard. Yeah. Do you know when I knew yeah. I was a success? Do when? you know the answer to that? No. Not when I made the New York Times list. Not when I got my first big, big, fat check. I knew I was a success when I was an answer on Jeopardy. Alex Trebek wow. even said my name right. <laughs> like he, he said it like he'd been reading my books for years. <laughs> and not only that, I was a daily double. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard that story before. Yeah, it was just a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Yeah. That's fantastic. All right, we're coming down to sort of the end of the interview. Before we wrap up, you know, last couple of questions, is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should be talking about? Did I miss anything? Oh, let me see. Lots of good things going on in my life. I mean, if if life goes back to normal. And... um, I have two little grandchildren now. My son remarried and has two little ones that are four and two. And, you know, that's the nicest thing of all because I can knit something for them that's small and fast. (laughs) So, yeah, I think we're good. I think we're good. Okay. Well, that's good. So, in this troubled time, what advice can you give out to the world? You never, you know, you should prepare me for these questions, Bender, and they're big, hard questions. What advice would I I give to the world is to be hopeful. You know, every morning when I get up, the first thing I do is recite the Lord's Prayer. And when it gets to the part where it says, deliver us from evil, has a whole new meaning to me now. But the next phrase in that is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God has got this. Hold on, keep the faith, and be strong and smart. Yeah, we talked about strong and smart. We had one one other piece of advice you gave me uh, years ago uh, that I, you know, is just so apropos is that you talk about the dark voices getting in and needing to make a conscious effort to not listen to the dark voices that that make you doubt yourself or doubt your self worth. I I remember you talking about that and at the time 
just feeling like it was very powerful, that message. And, of course, you've had a lot of experience with that. Yeah. And even even with all my successes now, sometimes those voices are right there on the the you know the edge of my mind and I'll dream you know they're nightmares you know and I have to get up in the morning and remind myself how blessed I am in so many ways that I can't go back I have to look forward well that's the only way to look all right last thing out here do you have anyone you want to thank or make a shout out to I want to thank all my knitting friends and all my fellow hooligans. And if you love yarn as much as I do, you can understand why I have two yarn rooms. And my yarn room is twice the size of my office (laughs) because I love yarn so much. And I currently have four projects going at the same time. I can't seem to decide which one to knit on. (laughs) Any lace? Uh, Yes. Two. You're making your knitting lace. You have two of them. But I'm doing wow. I'm doing one of them in a in a worsted, which makes it a little okay. bit easier. Okay. Okay. You've changed a little bit. You've gotten a you know you, you I remember talking to you a couple of years ago. Lace was something that was a little you know uh, you know but good for you. You're you're a courageous person. Yeah. All right. Well, you know that's that's all I, I I really wanted to talk to you about today. Of course, I want you to come back on the show so we can hear about your successes when your books are published and, and all this kind of stuff. So I'll have you back on again. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I I really do appreciate you making the time. Oh, thank you so much, Benjamin, and thank you for all those hooligans out there listening. <laughs> Well, again, you're the, you're the original hooligan. Um, you have a, a great week, and uh, again, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you, Benjamin. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That was Debbie Mancomer, a wonderful lady. I'm glad that I could catch up with her a bit, and I'm so pleased she could find the time to be on the show. During the show, we talked about a lot of things uh, and her projects, um, and so we'll make sure that we put the links uh, in the show notes, and that information should be up on uh, Fiber Hooligan within the next day or so. Okay, next Monday, my guest will be Charan Sikar from Creative with Clay. I almost mispronounced his name. Charan's pronouns are he and him. If you've been to Stitches West in the past couple of years, you might have met him and seen his wonderful work firsthand. Charan lived in India for a significant part of his life, where his mother ran a boutique designing clothes for brides and bridesmaids. Designs, colors, fabrics, and embroidery he came across then have a strong impact on his work now. In 2014, Charan took up knitting as a hobby, and very soon the knitting patterns started making an appearance into his work. Soon, he purchased a floor loom and a spinning wheel. Now, he obsesses over dyeing fiber and is fascinated about color mixing and different spinning techniques, which change the appearance of the final yarn. The transformation of fiber to yarn and yarn to fabric inspires him further regarding the textures and colors of his pottery. He uses a combination of techniques such as wheel throwing, extrusions, slab constructions, and alterations to create his forms. Each piece is then further decorated with textures he creates to give it the feel of embossed and knitted fabric. These are further enhanced with underglaze, slip, and glazes that he formulates to add beauty and functionality to his pieces. In 2011, Charan quit his full-time job of 12 years as a software engineer to pursue his passion in clay. Pottery has given him a much-needed respite from the monotony of everyday life. 
His story and work have been featured in the New York Times, HGTV, several knitting magazines such as Vogue, Noro, and Tiny Fiber Studio. His goal is to continue to work with this medium to create artwork that can be cherished for life. Charn is amazing is amazingly creative. He is a delight to talk to, and I'm so pleased that we could book him on Fiber Hooligan next week. Please put it on your calendars. This should be a great show. I also want to make sure that you know that I'm eager to hear from you. You can email me questions, recommendations, critiques, and feedback at fiberhooligan at gmail.com. And that includes suggestions for guests or other cool things that you might like me to highlight in the show. I don't promise to respond to every email or message, but I do promise to do my best to read them all. If you ask a really great question or have an inspired idea, I may even read your email on the podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Debbie, for being on the show today. I'd like to thank XRX and the Stitches crew for encouraging me um, to start this podcast up again. I'd like to thank my partner and family, Elaine Raleigh, for her support. I'd like to thank Libby Butler-Gluck for all her encouragement and help in getting this podcast started. I'd like to especially thank my dear wife, Krista, for always believing in me. I'd, this week, I'd like to thank my son, youngest son, Gabriel, for exposing me to Twitch and just for being a good guy. And I'd also like to send an extra shout-out to my friend Tobias Federer from Malabrigo. Thank you much for your advice, sir. It meant a lot. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Well, that's our show, Fiber Hooligans. As we slide on out of here today, I'd like to wish you all a glorious week. Remember, the only thing better than being creative is being kind to each other. The good news, we can do both. Thank you for spending this time with us. I hope you'll join us next week with our special guest, Charan Shkar, on another edition of Fiber Hooligans.